Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Well, hey, this episode today is a really, really special one, and I'm excited for you to hear it as we get to the tail end of season 11 of this podcast. Now, the theme today is electrification, and this is something that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, but this is a conversation that was very interesting for me, and I'm, I'm still thinking about it and, and, and processing what what I learned by being a part of this and in the months since then. But about six months ago, I was in New Brunswick, Canada, and Compact Appliances had invited me out to do a keynote address and teach some classes at their 40th anniversary celebration. And this event is unbelievable. I mean, I mean, truly the the Compact Appliances dealer show is unlike anything I have ever ever been at there, there's there's nothing like it in our industry it's really special because there are so many dealers there that aren't able to come to the hpba show every year and sometimes even the hba canada events just due to proximity and how far it is to to make it from there to the rest of the united states or canada and compact does a really good job of bringing the trade show to them and in addition to that, they have created a family environment that is unlike anything I've seen in the industry. And to be a part of it is something that is really, really special. So earlier this year, I was out there and they asked me to host a panel on electrification. Now, there were three guests on this panel. The first was Gaetan Thomas. And Gaetan is the former CEO of New Brunswick's power company. And, and this guy has been given national awards. He's been recognized as one of the foremost leaders in climate change and decarbonization in Canada. He serves on advisory boards to the Canadian Parliament. I mean, this guy really, really knows his stuff. Now, also on this, we had Christian Romero. And Christian works for Napoleon. In particular, he works as a part of Napoleon's HVAC division. And Christian spent some time living in Mexico City. He now resides in Quebec City in Canada. And Christian brought some really good perspective on this issue as well. And then finally, we had Grant Falco on from Falco's in Spokane, who you guys have heard on this podcast many times before. And we had a conversation about electrification. Now, this was, this was a long discussion, and in it, we cover all kinds of things. But for me, what, what I really took away was listening to Gaetan's knowledge and his nuance how much he believes in biomass products being something that can actually help electrification and, and not something that should be pushed against, but something that can lead the way to a clean future. And for me, when it comes to electrification, I'm still trying to figure out exactly where I stand. I, I know I don't stand with either of the extremes, and I think that there's a lot of people that are in that same position. And, and this conversation is one that 
is really powerful. And, and what it really solidifies to me is that this is not going away. Electrification is not going away. It cannot be overcome. It will not be pushed aside. So in light of that, what can our industry do to be a part of the solution and protect the well-being of our customers and our businesses as we try to find the right path forward for our environment? Now, you very well may have all kinds of thoughts based on what I've just said at the beginning of this episode, and that's great. Like this is an issue that we need to have a lot of discussion on. And like I said, you know, the jury's still out for me on, on exactly where I want to plant my flag on this. But I think this conversation is one that's really, really important and you're going to learn a lot by listening to it. So I'm going to step out of the way so that you can hear it. And I'll come back at the end to share a few parting thoughts. Well, Hey, I'm really, really excited to be here. I'm honored that you guys had me come out again. If we haven't met, I'm from the West Coast of the United States. So I'm, I'm a fish out of water here and I love it. It's, it's really amazing. This conversation today that we're going to have is on the issue of electrification and decarbonization. And, and these are things that we hear about in the news. We hear you know whispers of it and people have different opinions. But I think largely our industry has not confronted this issue yet in the way that we need to. And as companies who run businesses and serve customers, you know, we're trying to figure out what does this look like for us? And that's what today's discussion is going to be about. So we have some amazing panel guests here. We have Gaetan, we have Christian, we have Grant Falco, and we'll be jumping into specifically what their expertise is. But the goal of this conversation today is that we talk holistically about what this issue is, and we'll get down to the nitty gritty level of in your own business what does this look like for you? And so to start this out, we can start with you, Gaetan, to talk about your experience and, and, and how you're involved with decarbonization and electrification. Well, thank you, Tim. Honored for me to be here. I've been around NB Power for 38 years. I was CEO when I retired, and I found it awful boring to retire after all the activities. So I got involved with the Economic Council. I also am a strategic advisor for McCarthy Thetro, which is a top energy law firm in the country. And I all, I'm also a strategic advisor for Cotter International, which is a top guru, deep transformational change management. I sit on the net zero advisory body for the country. For the Americans that are here, uh, you don't have such a thing yet. You probably will have eventually, but we're an independent body of experts that give advice to the Minister of Environment on setting the targets to achieve net zero by 2050. It's actually legislated and we are set up to oversee transitions of government. So there's continuity in our net zero pathway in Canada. So I will bring some of my experience. I've also been the chief nuclear officer at NB Power and I was sitting on the World Association of Nuclear Operators. So I was the chairman of the board overseeing 115 uh, nuclear plant, including all the 103 or 102 nuclear plants in the U.S. So I have a broad experience and I've always was a fan of biomass because biomass is readily available. And uh, from a regulation point of view, I hope that we're able to make the steps so that it is fully seen as a carbon neutral way to uh, decarbonize our economy. Thank you. That's great. Let's actually go to Grant in the middle here. Grant, you want to introduce yourself and talk about this issue just a little bit, what you've seen in your own business? 
Yeah. So hi, everyone. Again, I'm so excited to virtually be back. I am honored to be here. I run a retail store myself. We roughly do 5 million in natural gas appliances and a couple million in pellet and wood appliances. We've been in business for 90 plus years. We're a fourth generation business. We are embedded in what we do, and that is fireplaces, stoves, inserts, all that stuff. I'm here today to share what we've done in diversifying what we sell and how we sell it. And I'm excited because you guys uh, up in Canada and in that area, I think are a little bit ahead of us, but in Washington state here, we're seeing major electrification pushes in different avenues. And it's impacting my business today, literally having builders move over to electric and having homeowners call me asking, are they going to be able to keep the natural gas appliances? And there's so much momentum from the government pushing and wanting electrification that natural gas and other appliances are going to have a hard time being sold into even retro markets. So we diversified to heat pumps and I'm excited to share our journeys, overcoming our obstacles and the things that we've seen and done because of it. Thanks, Grant. And Christian, let's go to you. Well, first of all, I'm honored to be here. I lead the HVAC division of Napoleon. In a simple word, that's my job, growing the HVAC division of the company. But I think that the most important, in addition to what Gaten and, and, and Falco correctly mentioned it, I would like to use this platform today just to try to answer and to give some direction of what's going to happen in the future in our industry. And the reason, guys, is very simple. There are not hundreds, but thousands of questions from professionals of heart and HVAC about what's going to happen with everything that is going on for both decarbonization and electrification. Simple questions like, can I still use gas? Can I still buy gas products? What's it going to change? There are a lot of grants in the different provinces in Canada, and I always say it with all due respect, Canada, it's a very complex country from a regulation perspective. Every province is very different. So the intention is, how can we educate customers, home users, about what they can do in the future? Because we need just to put that kind of what I call fear of banning gas a little bit aside and how we can incorporate dual hybrid systems and technology into homes. Because as Gaten and I were discussing earlier today, at least we have 20, 25 more years, in my opinion, that we will continue to see the use of gas, but in combination with sustainable uh, applications, more environmental. That's great. Well, thank you, guys. So to kick this off, Gaetan, let's talk to you first. And I'd love for you to speak just big picture about what is electrification? How is that different than decarbonization? And why has that become such an imperative for governments in North America, and in particular here in Atlantic Canada? Well, electrification is basically, it's everything electricity, like electric chainsaws, electric lawnmowers. It's everything that we normally use to do with gas or with powering uh, with coal or everything will have to change. And, and, and this is at the macro level, an idealistic solution because you cannot go from 
where we are on our grids, for instance, in the country, 82% non-emitting in Canada. So we're doing well compared to actually the US and many other countries in the world. But to go from 82% to 100%, there's a humongous task ahead of us. And it's not only electricity, it's going to put some pressure on the mining, you know, the special metals, the batteries, it's going to create a complete different economy. And I'm never a big fan of putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, one size doesn't fit all. Electrification is seen as a savior of the earth. Unfortunately, it will take a lot of good thinking about the transition so that it doesn't happen at the expense of the economy. It doesn't happen at the expense of businesses. I mean, the small and medium businesses in New Brunswick are 90% of our businesses and they are close to 50% of the GDP of the province. And there's a lot of room, you know, just this building, how do you make it net zero? Electrification can do it all, but can we find enough uranium, enough lithium, enough of the components to actually transform this grid, which will require two and a half times what it has for production today to reach net zero by 2050? So you spoke about electrification. Can you talk about how that's distinct from decarbonization and why is there this major, major imperative for decarbonization? Well, electrification would not be the preferred solution if it wasn't for decarbonization. Because as you know, when you create a demand for a product, electricity is no different than everything you sell here, whether it's heat pump, whether it's fireplace, whether it's gas. When you create a demand that is so big, and, and double it, more than doubling it in less than 30 years on infrastructures that takes 20 years, 30 years to build where we were so far, it's a humongous task. It will create a cr- incredible pressure on the supply chains because you cannot make those infrastructure in, you know, these are 10-year plans for a nuclear plant, for instance, minimum 10 years. So the issue is decarbonization is really the trigger for electrification because everybody believes it's the ultimate solution. And I guard against that because it's not the only solution. It will require biomass. It will require gas as a transition. It will require hybrid system. There's much more hybrid cars that are being sold today than electric car. Why? Because there's limitation on the battery. There's limitations reducing the cost because the cost of batteries is 25% of the car. So That is the issue. You can't even get a car today. Why? Supply chain. Supply chain is already choking the little demand that we have. So if you put all our eggs in one basket, electrification could choke our economy. And this is why I think that decarbonization is the reason that we're going to electrification. But electrification has to be well thought out. So you're saying that decarbonization is a path towards electrification. And there are problems with electrification, with the grid, with load, demand, everything else, yet it's still an imperative from the government. So for people that have felt like, well, this is a ways off, it's not something we have to deal with now. Can you talk about why is it an imperative? It is an imperative because it's the only proven solution that can solve decarbonization. Like you can get to a net zero grid much quicker than you could get to a net zero home or a net zero everything. So it is the known path, but I also believe that it will allow time, if we have a good transition plan, 
to build the innovation because I do believe that unfortunately half the innovations that will be required to solve decarbonization, which is a challenge that we all agree has to be done, are not even created yet. So in parallel, there will be other innovations that we got to be careful that we don't continue to build those, for instance, large nuclear plants, large in installation, when in the future, you'll be able to probably have solar roof, solar windows, and have your own home self-sufficient. So there is going to be a transition there too. So you build those transmission, you build those big power plants, and suddenly you have a situation where you have assets that you have to actually pay for, and there's no customers because customers have figured out a way to actually do their own operation self-sufficiently and at a lower cost. So you, you, you understand that the cross between ecology, social acceptance, and environment could be that we take a path, a one-way path that is, is going to be a short-term path because businesses will find cheaper ways to power their operation. So we can't put all our eggs in one basket. And, and just to really drill this down, though, especially in Atlantic Canada, this is coming. There's, not, there's no debate, right? There's no debate. Canada has taken this position that they're going to reduce their emission by 40% by 2030. That will be very hard to even do that. Because the grid in the Atlantic Canada, especially in Newfoundland and New Brunswick and PEI, are already over 80% non-emitting. Nova Scotia is at 60. But overall, we're not that far off. It's the last 5%. The last 10% of anything you want to do takes 90% of the time and usually 90% of the cost. If you want to perfect something to 100%, it's exponentially higher. So, so the last 10% are going to be very hard for New Brunswick and all Atlantic Canada. So we don't want that burden on our economies. You know, I represent businesses in New Brunswick that have a hard time to survive supply chain issue, inflationary costs. All these things going up. At one point, the customers are going to say, we can't afford it. And, and then we'll have a pressure on the economy. So the electricity challenges are, are certainly going to do that. But right now, all the governments, including New Brunswick, are committed to make those targets. And it comes at a price. Yeah. So, Grant, let's go to you. In, in the U.S., we're moving slower than Canada is. But Washington is a state where there has been a lot of regulatory pressure. And in spite of there not being any immediate changes today that you've been forced into, you've still made changes in your business to look at diversifying. Can you talk about why you've done that and just what, what are some of those changes that you've made? Yeah, well... It's one of those things where I think for me, it was an accumulation of timing. So five or six years ago, as I'm thinking about buying the business and, and thinking about 20 and 30 years down the road for our business, uh, Washington State really started to ramp up their decarbonization and in turn, electrification push. And being a part of government affairs through the HPBA and trying to understand that government affairs is this crystal ball that tells you what's coming, I started to see that regulations were coming in all sorts of directions. Like I was fighting it at the city level, the local level, and also at the state level and in different channels. And what I saw is this massive tidal wave, like a tsunami, a thousand feet tall coming a thousand miles an hour. And we just are looking from the beach and it's like, Oh, there's this little wave out there and it's coming. 
Well, it's coming hot and fast. And I don't think our industry understands. Five years ago, I took the first step of a thousand mile journey trying to figure out how to enter this market, believing that ductless heat pumps are best for a hearth retailer. And the reason I believe that is because as I did estimates at the time or a long time ago for our business and was in, are in people's homes, really fireplace and hearth retailers are set up perfectly to sell heat pumps. We classified our business as a zonal heating and cooling company. And we did that five years ago, even though there was a major amount of obstacles to learn before the tidal wave hit, to understand what was coming, how big was it, how fast was it. The hard part is, is HVAC uh, distributors don't really want to sell to our retailers. So there was a lot of lessons along the way in this last four or five years. But what I saw is a fireplace industry that maybe a couple years ago in the last few years is at the peak of what it is ever going to be. That's truly what I believe. And I believe that in seeing what is coming and how fast it's coming. And I believe also that it's never going to go away and that there's going to be a perfect harmony between ductless heat pumps and the alternative uh, appliances that we sell. And so making the decision was extraordinarily difficult because of all the buy-in and all the commitment that you have to go through to learn the lesson. But I was buying a business and spending a good amount of money where three quarters of the revenue is in natural gas. And in the last four or five years, I've testified two to four times a year on natural gas bans or banning the bans or talking about alternative heat sources being a part of it, even wood we're fighting. And so in the last five years, we've seen an exponential growth because demand is growing. Awareness is growing. The government is putting money behind ductless heat pumps and going zonal heating and cooling is truly what we all need to be thinking about because it fits with what we do in fireplaces and alternative heat sources. And it also fits with what we need to do and are perfectly set to do. The last thing that I'll leave you with is I think Canada is a little bit different than the United States, but HVAC, you know, ventilation, air conditioning, heating, that's what we're selling against. And that's why we're best set up. We have the customers. The thing I recognize doing estimates really early on is that the customers that come in and are going to buy a pellet stove, but you can't close them or going to buy a wood stove, but can't close them. Generally, my money is that they go out and they find a solution that's a ductless heat pump. How many times have we talked to a customer about a wood stove that is looking at a pellet stove? And why are they looking at a pellet stove? Because it's a little cleaner, a little bit easier, maybe not that much easier. And you have to be honest with them, but they're making the change because they, they don't want to go to propane and pellet seems to be the next logical movement, but they have asthma or COPD or something that they shouldn't be doing a pellet stove or a wood stove. And a heat pump is a perfect solution. It doesn't take a footprint and it supplies heating and cooling. And then there's tons of rebates, credits, and a reduction in their monthly cost. We have the customers. You don't even have to market this to start selling them. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about it today because Compact, I believe, is way ahead of the curve being a hearth retailer selling zonal heating and cooling products.
Thanks, Grant. That's awesome. So, okay, let's let's talk. You brought this up a little bit that there are valid critiques of the one size fits all approach to electrification, the grid, load, demand, supply, all of these things, but it's still moving ahead regardless. And and maybe Gaetan, could you speak to where do alternative heat sources fit in an electrified world? Well, in New Brunswick, we have the second highest peaking grid in Canada, just behind Quebec. And heat pumps is actually a pretty nice solution. And some people say it's a perfect solution, but it, it's not a perfect solution because it exacerbates the peaking problem that we have. And for instance, if you take a biomass and you turn it into a heat pump, you're going to increase the demand on peaking power. And peaking power is basically done by gas or oil. Like there's not many grids. In Ontario, as much nuclear as they have, they're still doing their peaking power with gas. They still have a high proportion of gas. And even Quebec at times will need to buy power from other provinces and it will be gas they will be buying. They may not want to produce it in their province, but they would be buying gas. And therefore, this solution is actually creating a burden on the grids. And then the grids will have to put more nuclear, but nuclear cannot be justified or be economic if it's only for three days or three months of the year. So that is the dilemma. And when we talk about solutions that, yeah, it looks good on paper, but you are not allowed to actually depend, you know, only on electric pump because some of them in the northern climate are not are not suitable. So you keep an electric heat backup system. So therefore, most homes that have heat pumps in New Brunswick would have heat pumps and they would have electric system that they only use for three or four days a year. If you convert oil to e- electricity, it's a less of a burden. You're going to reduce your footprint. But if you move electric heating to heat pump, you're not necessarily reducing your fr- footprint a lot. And if you take biomass and you replace that with heat pump, you're not reducing your footprint. You're actually increasing your footprint. So that's why it will take a lot of ingenuity to have the products. And I'm learning that now they have a lot of hybrid products. I think that there's going to be a market for that, just like there's a big market for hybrid cars. So you said that if if biomass were to get replaced with electric options, that it wouldn't lower the footprint. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, because the demand is in high peaking jurisdiction. The demand is what hurts you. It's the final megawatts that you have to do, even if it's only for three or four months. You have to be there. You have an obligation to serve. Therefore, you build today. The only options that you have in many jurisdictions is gas. It's the cheapest option available for peaking power. It's actually quite easy to build a gas plant, but it does increase the the footprint. And the regulations today will allow gas plants for peaking power because there's no other solution that can do peaking power. Wind can't do it. Solar can't do it. When storage is not far enough developed, it's only good for 10, 20 hours. You could have three days of rain or three days of snow or three days of no wind or three days of high winds where you still have to shut your windmills. Therefore, this issue is not simple from a grid perspective because you can't justify large infrastructure for three months of the year. Therefore, you know, the energy is it's a such. So if you put all your eggs in there, that's why I'm a big fan of biomass and a big fan of also heat pumps. However, you got to be careful to heat pump what they're replacing. That's great. Christian, let's turn to you. So you represent Napoleon. When we were talking the other day, 
you mentioned that the product roadmap has changed a lot, right? Even five years ago, what R&D is working on is 100% different, right, than what they're working on now. Am I understanding that, that, that this issue is, has really shifted the strategic direction? 100%. Everything that the research and developments or the engineering departments, and I think I don't speak only on behalf of Napoleon. You can talk to any manufacturer in North America and the changes and the adaptation process to hydronics and to heat pumps in order to offer at least hybrid dual source of heating is it, something that, that is happening right now. Thank you. Okay. So let's pause real quick and open it up for some questions. And there's there's a few follow-ups that I have as well. Does anyone have a question that they want to ask the, the group? If so, I'll bring the mic over to you. Jesse, did you have one? I had a question, basically, if the government has started looking at ramping out of furnace oil, especially, uh, whether that is, there's a you know, timeline or anybody knows. So I have a lot of customers that are still thinking about replacing oil tanks, and I'm trying to convince them not to. And I'm wondering if there's talk at government levels or in, in, in that world that oil will no longer be available. Well, certainly oil is on the uh, bad boys list, like uh, <laughs> oil and, and coal. Uh, coal has been the first one targeted by the federal government and to be banned in Canada by 2030. There is no such ruling per se on oil yet, but I know that if we're going to get to 2035 net zero grid and meet the targets that we have established for 2030, I think they will have to come up with programs. And I think they'll, they're gonna come up with some pretty aggressive measures to get off oil no later than 2035. There's jurisdiction in Europe that has banned oil by 2035. So Canada is usually not far from that. Cool. Thank you. Any other questions that have popped up since we've started discussing this? Can I ask a question, Tim? Yeah. Well, I have a question for the panelists as well, just because I'm a retailer and experiencing this live like everybody else. I was on a, a meeting where they talked about how electrification, if it moves forward and we basically eliminated everything, it would take roughly 100 years to, to clean the air to what we, what we need. And I don't know if that's true, but what, what came of that was interesting to me. And I just didn't know if there was any elaboration from the panelists. They talked about specifically carbon consumption carbon consumption being one of the ways, maybe one of the only ways along with certain things we're trying to do now to offset this. Do you know anything about that? Have you heard anything about that? Is there any more you could offer on carbon consumption other than just, you know, trees? Yeah. Well, in Canada, we call it carbon capture. And uh, there's a big debate whether trees count. We have lots of trees. And actually, we uh, absorb more carbon in Canada than we could ever produce. So if you counted the trees, we'd probably be actually a negative consumption on carbon. However, it's all based on the way that people look at carbon. They look at what we're emitting now and how do we reduce it to get to net zero. And then carbon consumption or carbon capture is going to be treated as a last measure. But like I said earlier, we're going to need all the tricks in our tool bag, you know, nuclear, hydro, wind, biomass, you name it. But we're also going to need carbon capture. And why? There are industries like the steel, the cement, 
agriculture is going to be hard for the last 10%. Like say we achieve 90% and we're, we're down to the 10% reduction. It's going to require all the tools in the arsenal and it will include carbon capture. There are some very good uh, places in Canada to do it, especially in Alberta. And guess what? Because we have a lot of gas out there, it's actually a good area where you could actually offset the gas to allow the transition to go past 2040, 2050, that will allow us to actually achieve net zero. Net zero is an addition of reducing all the emission possible, but whatever is left, we're going to have to figure out a way to consume it or capture it. Thank you. That's great. Gaetan, can you talk specifically what government incentives are there right now? Well, governments, they change all the time, but they're actually quite substantive. And we work as a Conseil Economique with our partners in biomass that similar incentives should be there for biomass. Because I really believe that biomass today is a cleaner solution for the environment because it actually alleviates the burden on peaks. Every unit that is going to go on biomass is going to reduce the peak for electric heating, every one of them. And that is the cleanest solution today. Now, for the existing electric heating, if you're not going to go to biomass, then uh, high quality, high efficiency, and also a colder climate, like minus 40 if possible, and, and they'll come, the engineers, they're, they're going to come up with these solutions. Then I do believe that uh, you can actually decarbonize homes because that is going to be tough to do. And, and obviously for gas and, and oil, it's a no-brainer. Whether you go biomass or heat pump, you're going to reduce emission immediately. So I don't know if you guys caught that. There was an amazing story in there. So when a customer comes in and they're nervous about the sustainability of wood or pellet, and I, maybe out here you don't get that as much. Where, where I live in the United States, all the time. But what you just said is, you know, even though electric might on a piece of paper look better for a carbon footprint, this is going to reduce that peak demand. And that's huge. To be able to reduce the peak demand and operate biomass instead, that's a great story of efficiency. See, we haven't hit the peak demand yet that we're going to face. Imagine when you have these electric cars, when everybody comes back from work and they want, you know, you can say, well, we're going to penalize them, but who's going to charge their electric car, wake up or put programs at midnight? They want to make sure they have a charge. They're going to put the charger as soon as it comes from work. So it's going to be abundance of cars and abundance of issues on the electric grid. That will drive costs and that will also drive emission if you don't have hydro or nuclear ready to do these peaks. On that, what's going to happen to the cost of electricity going forward in Atlanta, Canada? Oh, well, you know, as an ex-CEO of NB Power, I, I have to be very careful how I talk about cost. <laughs> one of the reasons that the costs are going to be higher is because most governments did not take up their responsibility with respect to price. We're, we're in a catch-up mode. And we've been trying to actually subsidize electricity uh, over the years for 20 years in New Brunswick. And by the way, in many other jurisdictions, it's the same issue. I would say to avoid that issue, the government should have had provided help to the people that can't pay instead of subsidizing it for everybody. So now we have to catch up with that. That's the first thing. The second thing is the massive infrastructure it's hard to get private money to do that because they're huge. A nuclear plant, billion dollar, two billion dollar. So if you start having to construct these plants for short peaking power 
moments, like electric charging at night, heat pumps, and not putting up for three or four days in the winter. If you start doing that, the price could go quite high. But I have hope. That's why I'm not going to predict doom and gloom. I'm going to say that we're going to come up with technologies like solar roof, solar wind, payback within six, seven years. Consumers will start actually trying to figure out a way to do it at the distributed level. These technologies are not refined yet, but just like electric vehicles 20 years ago, nobody would buy one, right? The same thing will happen with solar roofs, solar windows. When the electricity price keep increasing like they will, I think what the mitigating point will be to do much more work at the net zero home concept. One of the issues, the price of electricity is so low and it actually caused these horrible behaviors that we have as as a citizen. So as the price goes up, I do believe that people will take actions and we hope that actually the carbon footprint per person, and that's what we should be measuring, will diminish. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so questions. We've been talking about a few things. Let's go to Kim. So we've got a lot of different groups in the room. We've got manufacturers, we've got dealers, we've got factory representatives. I hear from a lot of the dealers as a rep that consumers coming into their stores are confused about what they should be doing for heating sources. They're confused, especially for new home construction and and certainly for renovation projects. You know, do we do this? Do we do that? There's lots of different solutions and hybrid and all this stuff that we're talking about. How do we think that we can get the right messaging to the homeowners and the consumers that are needing our products? I, I like to take that if possible. Absolutely. The, the responsibility starts with the manufacturers. It's our job. We are morally obligated to do is to provide through the different training programs that we have to all of our distributors and dealers. And I, and I speak on behalf of any manufacturer in North America, what the technology is, what problem it solves, what solutions we bring to the table, why is it more convenient? So that way we educate the distributors and the dealers, it's an education process that we need to start making sure or guaranteeing that the end user is well aware about the flexibility of the system. Yeah. Uh, So uh, Kimberly, customers come to you because they think of you as the expert or the guide. And so you have to play that role. And I appreciate you know, manufacturing stepping in and saying that's their role. But me as a retailer, I've never ever relied on a manufacturer to educate me on my customers, my community, and how I do my business. And we have to understand that with incentivizing electrification, we're disincentivizing the products that we sell. And so you're going to get question after question after question, and it's going to start now and maybe already has, and it's going to continue to get worse. You have to educate yourself. You have to become the expert, therefore the guide, and then you can either answer the question or even solve their problem with the product that you have. But there is tons of confusion in the marketplace and that's not going to change. You being fully understanding of what rebates and credits are offered in your jurisdiction and then understanding what solutions are out there for the things that are happening. I talked about a tsunami, thousand feet tall, thousand miles an hour. looks like it's about an inch tall out there in the ocean. It's coming. It's coming and we have to adjust and we have to invest in ourselves. 
It's not bringing in someone from the outside. It's training your existing team, creating a relationship with a partner like Compact and investing wholeheartedly into understanding all those things that you need to be the expert. It's an opportunity when they come to you confused to solve their problem and sell them, hopefully. That's great. And I I think that there is a harmony there with, like you said, Christian, manufacturers have access with advertising and things like that to get a specific message to the consumer. Grant, I'm hearing you say that you can't solely rely on that, that you have to you have to understand your message, your story and, and how that fits. Well, I appreciate any manufacturer that is willing to help and educate. That is definitely the case. But what I see all over the United States, not as much in Canada, I don't think, is reliance on the manufacturer to do things that you're responsible for. You know your business, you know your customers, and you know your community. You can take that information, but it's really important for you to fully understand all those things too. Questions. What's going through your guys' mind? Peter, I'm going to put you on the spot. We had a conversation yesterday about past experience and, and where you are in particular in Newfoundland. I've been listening to this, trying to take mental notes because there's a lot going on here. Um, Newfoundland, we're kind of unique. Grant feels like a, it's a stake to the heart here. You talk about zone heating. We get a lot of people coming in talking about, you know, wood stoves heating homes. We're not heating rooms. I don't think there's anybody here going to not sell a wood stove. If everybody's putting in heat pumps and we've got electric cars and we're talking about heat demand, we're going to be in trouble. So I think that putting our eggs in the heat pump basket is something that I'm not going to do. Um, I've been fighting it. We did it for 15 years. Got out of it. There's a lot of concerns. And I think that probably warrants more discussion than what we're having today. I want to tell you a little story. Maybe six, seven years ago, we put in an LG heat pump for my parents and they had it for three years. They loved it. Three years go by and it springs a leak outside. There's no refrigerant left in it. And we had a service guy go over and check it and it cracked inside the coil and it needed a coil replacement. Call LG up and I'm sorry, we don't make that unit anymore. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to send you a new Uber unit. Oh, great. Should be easy. You know, a couple of line sets and we're, we're waiting, way to go, right? No, sorry, the indoor unit doesn't match the outdoor unit. We've got to replace that too. Okay, so that becomes a full install. And now we're into a situation. It's my parents, it's my company. Um, you know, we get warranty for like an hour's labor. So it takes, you know, seven or eight hours to actually do it. So, you know, there's there's those things that we all have to consider, you know, as dealers and stuff. And I think that's important that we, we all have that conversation. So That's great, Peter. And yeah, round of applause. I mean, that, that level of honesty is terrific. And... Who, who wants to respond to that first? Uh, I will, I'll respond to a little bit of it. Uh, so, Peter, you know how much I admire you and respect you, and I think you're right. When analyzing your situation, your community, your customers, maybe ductless heat pumps aren't right. I, I, I totally am okay with that. But I think that we use a lot of rationale in that decision that we accept in from the hearth industry. So I just think we got to be careful in the situations that we use because we highlight standard things that we deal with in our industry with manufacturers all the time to make our point to not do something. In your area, Peter, you're one of the smartest people I've ever met and I believe you're probably right. But what I will say is that it's only going to improve. Heat pumps are only getting better. And I would argue wood stoves are not better. They're cleaner, 
but they are not better because the consumer buys them for burn time and heat. And when you go cleaner, we have less burn time and probably more heat, but uncontrolled heat. So I would say that our alternative biomass products are staying stagnant and since 2020 have only been more under attack. I mean, 80% of the wood stoves in our industry are under some type of review and may not be renewed. There's a lot of product out there that might not be able to be sold even in a couple of years because of what's happening in Alaska and this Nescom article. What I would say to the group is that I do think if you are in our industry that we have seen the best of times in the last few years, and I'm not trying to doom and gloom this thing, but I will tell you the momentum, the tidal wave, the tsunami is coming so fast that even if we reverse it or change it, it's still going to impact our business. And we do have some fights on the biomass side still. So all the companies, you have to look to diversify. You have to look to diversify. It does not mean you move away from the fireplace industry. There's no way I'm doing that. I want to be both. I want to utilize both. And we've gotten more information from this panel on how to sell that to the consumers. But right now I have a friend who lives four hours away. We have very similar businesses, okay? The economy is starting to slide and we're seeing a reduction in the demand of things that we do. He is freaking out. He is screaming from the rooftops because he is reliant on grills and more commodity type products for the spring and summer. And when we're talking, he's like, why are you not freaking out? When I analyze the numbers, you want to know why? Because I've sold 44 heat pumps year to date in the first five months of the year. It's offset any reduction. So instead of being 15% down or 50% down in outdoor, which I am, we're up 6% overall because it's hot and has been hot for two months. My install teams installing two to three heat pumps a week, and it's led to prosperity in a really difficult time. In the United States, Inflation Reduction Act is happening, which a part of that is high efficiency uh, heat pump act, which is incentivizing people in certain states up to $15,000 so they could get literally a free heat pump. One of the things we cannot miss is the disincentivizing of our product when that product is severely incentivized. And so there's obstacles, even if it's not heat pumps, there's obstacles. And if we relied on a certain amount of biomass sales, I do believe those will, in your area is sp different, Peter, and I'm not sp speaking specifically to you, but I do believe they will not return to the levels that they were the last couple of years. Therefore, you have to figure out something that fits installation, sales, and service, and also matches what you do in fireplaces. And that's where heat pumps, zonal heating and cooling really work. That's all I'll say. So to bring this together, I, I feel like one of the things that I'm taking away, kind of you know, observing from, from the side here, is as small businesses, we have to get really serious about our value proposition and our offering and our story, right? And in the same way, Grant, that you've gone all in on your story of zonal heating, which is part of your value wedge for where you're at in Spokane, Washington, every business here has to start thinking seriously about that. When someone gets hired in sales at our company, 
Do we say, hey, we're going to train you. Go sit by Bob. Bob's been doing it for 30 years. Or do we say, hey, now that you're hired here, this is how we sell. This is our process. This is our story. We're going to teach you this intentionally as opposed to by accident, hoping that someone gets it by osmosis. That's one of the big takeaways that I'm hearing here. You know, one of the other things I think in this in this conversation is none of this negates how important biomass is. I don't think any of it does. And I feel like, Gaetan, you've been really clear in that. And, and one of the things, especially, Peter, for you is, you know, biomass, you can turn it on anytime you want. You know, you've got a stove that's too big. Well, hey, you know, worst case, you, you can open up a window because the energy is there. And, and that's got to be part of our value wedge with this whole discussion that I just want to make sure in all the talk about electrification, it is not negating what biomass does. I, I just want to be really, really clear with that. And I feel like our industry was really founded on energy alternatives, right? So let's, let's end here. Grant, speaking very practically, how do you guys handle, now that you've built a, a division that offers, that offers ductless heat pumps, there's definitely more competition in this market. It's a more crowded space than what the fireplace market is. So that doesn't mean it's a commodity, but you talked in the past with me about how you have to handle the lead quicker, more intentionally, and different. Can you speak specifically to that to end here? Yes, I got one point I want to make right after this. So I, I believe that heating cooling is different. It's and you have to go through it. It's just, you know, the first step of the thousand mile journey, it tells you how to pivot, how to change. So I would say that people's demand for cooling far exceeds their demand for heating. And that's something I never knew. And any of you, when getting into this business, you will get into the business by selling air conditioners, heat pumps, but air conditioning first, because that's our off season. You have our, our industry does not pursue. I mean, maybe some of you do, but our industry, from what I see and travel around and see dealers, we do not pursue. We send out invites in the form of advertising. People come into the store and we try to sell them and set up a bid. HVAC is about pursuit. It's about leads and pursuit. You take a lead, you immediately call that customer or you email that customer, letting them know when you'll call that customer. And even so much so that we now Google map their home and try to give them some ballpark numbers based on the information from the lead. But you have to be reactive. The industry is different. One of the best parts about getting into the industry, though, is that just like the competition maybe in your town that doesn't do the best job with fireplaces, in the heat of the season still gets a lot of business. It's the same thing for you you will become the destination because you have the best schedule and you can accommodate a quick turnout because these people want their cooling right away. You can put a blanket on in the wintertime to stay warm. You cannot do anything to stay cooler. And that is a really big thing. So just know that there's urgency to leave you guys. So in the last 20 years, I've worked in this business. Literally, this is the 20th year. I'm passionate about this business. I care about this business and I love our industry. I will never abandon it. I will always support it. I will always be there for it. But that doesn't mean that I don't think we have to diversify. And I think there is a point of no return where you have to make the decision now to be your best three years from now when it's going to be most important. So I've never been able to come up with a mission statement for my business. 20 years, talked to Tim a million times. I've never been able to come up. Now we have a five-year plan and we're going to home energy audits, indoor air quality, et cetera. 
The one thing I want to just let you guys know is it all of a sudden gave me a mission, a passion, a reason for our employees to work. So I'm going to tell you what our mission statement is. I'm going to read it and then we'll be done. At Falco's, we believe it is up to each and every one of us to make the world a better place. Since 1928, our world has been this community. I think we can all agree our world and community are changing faster than ever. Knowing that, looking at the future and all that has transpired in the recent past, we have decided it's time to change as well. We have refocused our business around you, our community, and our future. Our mission is to provide total home comfort, save you money, and leave the world, our community, a better place. My team is behind that movement. That's now where we're at. I feel like there's a mission and a movement behind zonal heating and cooling. And I believe with fireplaces and heat pumps, and i sorry, I keep going to ductless heat pumps, but that's where, that's where I was brought in and what we've done. I just think there's an amazing marriage. Now, people like Peter and people in certain areas, it might not work and that's totally fine. I'm not trying to push it into an area that doesn't work, but there's so many solutions. It solves for you. One of the biggest problems is people are leaving jobs because they don't have a mission, a reason, a meaning to be there. To make our community cleaner and better is better than what we've ever done. So I just wanted to let you guys know that. I appreciate the time. Grant, that's great. Christian, what parting thoughts do you have? Well, let me be brief. Uh, federal government, provincial governments, manufacturers, distributors, and utilities companies are paving the way, in my opinion, for embracing newer technologies. And let me just be very clear. This doesn't mean, guys, in any way, shape, or form that we have to stop doing what we're good at. If you say, yeah, I've been very successful over the years, absolutely carry on. Just the flexibility of embracing and, and adapting to the changes and to the trends is going to do nothing but helping your business growth. And I'm telling you, again, the, the industry hasn't changed in that much as it has changed in the previous 20, 30, 40 years, as it has changed in the last four to five years. So that's my thought. And, and thank you so much. That's great. Yaton, how about you? Well, I'd like to just do a comment on Peter just a little bit here. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. And unfortunately, the incentivization program could let us to uh, to put heat pumps in un uninsulated homes. And that's what you got to be careful. At NB Power, we used to put, you got to do the insulation first before you get the incentive on the heat pump. You want to put a heat pump, you don't want to insulate, don't want to do the window stuff. And so we got to make sure that if there's a thousand incentive on a home or a business that is given, it should go to the most effective decarbonization solution. And it may be that it just fix your windows, buddy. So very, very good comments. Agree with you. Uh, to conclude, the, the decarbonization is a movement. It's actually something that we have to unite everybody towards. It's more than a path. It's a movement that the world has undertaken. And electrification is one of the solutions. And I do believe that some people think electrification is the only solution, and that is not true. Because with electrification doesn't cover carbon capture. That means that you're, you're not, you're not going to have offsets. 
And if people think that electrification does it all, then you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to forget about carbon offsets. You're going to forget about carbon capture. So I do believe that it's uh, electrification, a big part of the picture, but then you have to decide how you're going to electrify. This decarbonization is actually a crisis. And I really believe that it might be, you know, if we wait another five, six, seven years and we don't meet the 2030 targets, if we don't do that, then I don't think the 2050 will be realizable. So we need to really put all the effort and incentivize the right solution for the right part of the world. And I think I've finished with Grant. You got to understand our customers and their needs because many of us don't know what, what we need. So we depend on manufacturers. We depend on retailers. We depend on utilities to help us fashion the solutions that will solve this decarbonization problem. That's great. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I think that there is a lot there. And, you know, as I, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I was so impressed by Gaetan and his approach. It, it, it is much more measured and nuanced than I've seen personally in the United States. And I think that there is really something to say for our products being able to be that source of heat that helps during peak load. Because as electrification continues to roll forward, there's going to be issues with, with, with peak times and with, and with power failures. And our products have such a place to help people there. And like, especially wood burning and pellet. I mean, carbon neutral products that use renewable energy. I mean, my goodness, like what a compliment to people that have all electric systems. And, you know, as you've heard it in the past in this podcast, we have a conversation with Jean-Francois out of Coval that they view this as an opportunity. And, you know, as you listen to this, you might be in a similar position to me where you're taking information in, the jury's kind of out on where your convictions are, but you know that you don't want the extremes of the far left or the or the far right. Now, maybe you have a more firm position one way or the other. My hope is that this conversation makes you think twice. And if you listen to it and think the same thing as before, well, hey, great. I mean, now you can be even more sure about what you think. But at least for me, you know, this this is definitely making me think about opportunity and think about the way to position advocacy for our industry in conversations that are going forward. And my hope is that, you know, we can take a, a balanced approach that is good for the environment, that is good for people, so they're not freezing or in a position where they, they don't have warmth for their families, and that also is good for our industry. You know, for, for me personally, um, I don't think there's a lot of stock in the fuel choice argument. And the reason I say that is that the people who are making these laws, you know, they don't give a flying hoot about fuel choice. But if we can talk practically about during peak times, you know, what, what are people going to do? What if, what if we could provide a fuel source that was low carbon or carbon neutral during peak times? Like, wouldn't that make sense so that we're not having to go and burn coal to provide that peak power? 
or to be able to keep somebody safe when there's a freeze and at the same time the the grid is inoperable. I, I think that those more practical discussions are ways that we can move the needle going forward. And so, yeah, I hope that you guys got a lot of value out of that conversation. Well, hey, if this podcast today has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash it's fire time. And, you know, as, as you are thinking about this, right, in the heart of December, getting ready to go into the new year, I would I would spend some time becoming informed about this issue. And it's very easy to read propaganda from only one side, usually, you know, the side that you have a, have a bent towards. And I would, I would recommend opening yourself up to read from people that you disagree with or from positions that you disagree with, because it's never going to hurt you. It's, it's, it's only going to make your position stronger if you're actually right. But for me, a big voice that I've been listening to in this conversation is Seth Godin. And Seth was a part of putting together a resource that's called the Carbon Almanac. And I picked that up last year, and it's a it's a pretty big book, but that has been very, very helpful for me to start to navigate this issue. And so I just pass that on as a resource for you as well. So with all that said, we're going to get back to our normal cadence of interviews next week and then wrap this season up with a Q&A episode in two weeks. And if you have any questions, you can email them in. My email address is tim at itsfiretime.com and I'll address as many of those questions as I can in that final episode. So hope you guys have an amazing week. We'll talk again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. I'm all in to burn it down.